0: Hi, this is Surya Devi, and welcome to A Voice for Love. I'm a world music artist and healer from Vancouver, Canada, with over two decades experience serving individuals from all walks of life. We're going to be speaking with leaders and visionaries from around the world in the field of art, music, activism, health, education, spirituality, and more to talk about what it means to be a voice for love. We're going through massive changes on the planet right now, and I believe that what the world needs more than ever are people who are aligned, heart-led, and who can speak from the soul to help usher in even bigger shifts that will elevate us all into a more harmonious existence together. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey there! This is Surya. Welcome to A Voice for Love, and I'm so excited to introduce to you my very wonderful guest today, Dorje, the singing shaman. Welcome, Dorje! Yay! Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so, so much for coming out. Yeah, so good to to connect with you again. We go we go way back to a very a very epic trip to China.
2: Oh my god! before that too but the china was before the... that too but we were also like we were like each other's buddy like we were tra- our travel buddies we were each other's person because we all kind of needed to like pair off and have a person yes. and it was me and you we were always roommates in every little shack and hotel that we stayed in yes every shack and five-star hotel that yeah was the... there was a real spectrum of accommodation <laughs> It was so
1: so great. So can you tell everyone um, who doesn't know you a little bit about you?
2: Yeah. uh, As you said, my name is Dorje. I'm the singing shaman. Uh, I have been practicing energy medicine for the better part of 10 years. I've traveled all over the world, trained with different masters and different lineages, Um, I've been bestowed with the Munikai rites, which is within the Kyoto shamanism lineage. Um, Also, I use the empowerments given to me by our guru as well within my healing practice. And I'm also an emerging country singer and songwriter and just released my first full-length album in November. And I am currently based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Wonderful. Yeah. Let's, let's
1: talk about your album because it's like amazing the quality of it and the musicianship and your voice. And I, I just love it. So have you always been a singer? And cause I know I, this is like a, not a new thing for you. Cause I'm sure you've probably been like singing your whole life, but this is your first yeah.
2: professional album. Was it? Yeah, this is my first professional album. I definitely had a really interesting journey getting to this space i'm in now being like a professional i guess artist and musician and recording artist um i i grew up in a very musical family especially on my mom's side of things my grandma was like a multi-instrumentalist uh, you know played banjo guitar ukulele piano mouth organ accordion pump organ um and she and her siblings she had seven siblings they did a lot of, like, recordings, like, back in the, like, 30s and 40s, like, seven-part harmonies, that kind of stuff. So um, I grew up definitely, you know, our family joining around the piano and singing and that kind of stuff, and certainly took a big interest in performance in, like, junior high and high school. Um, but, yeah, in high school, my self-confidence really kind of took a hit. And after that, I didn't – I just didn't feel – like, I could pursue it, like, in any meaningful way other than, you know, singing at karaoke. I really struggled with the sound of my voice. Like, I didn't like how I sounded when I sang. So that was, like, a painful thing for me to, like, listen to myself singing. And I also had picked up a limiting belief somewhere that I couldn't write songs either. Um, so that was kind of it. Like, all through my 20s and I went through a lot of, um, you know journeys of unpacking like my traumas and and my wounds and managing my mental health and stuff like that. And that's when I found Buddhism and energy medicine and all of that. And that really took me on a path of me like understanding that I had the capacity to be a healer. And so I really went down that path. I felt like that's where spirit was taking me down that path, everything in particular, after the, the pilgrimage, um, I had some incredible, I don't know if you remember, I traveled on to Thailand or off to Thailand after I left you guys in China on my own. And I just traveled by intuition. I didn't have a plan when I got to Thailand. I just flew there and I had a month there and I just allowed my intuition to guide me. And the places I end up there really solidified me embarking on the path to be some type of healer. I didn't know at the time, someone called me a shaman while I was there in Thailand and I rejected that. I was like, what? I was like, no, I'm not. I was like, I just, I just kind of work with energy. Like it's, you know, that kind of vibe and that kept showing up for me. And then I was presented with the opportunity to go to an actual accredited school of shamanism that was created by Dr. Alberto Velodo um and he like i said he trained with Kiero shaman uh to help create this curriculum and also for them to be a part of the teaching um which was very important to me for things to be appropriate and making sure um you know one we know where the medicine is coming and that those people that are teaching it are also benefiting from it like they, they're the ones that are you know making the money off of it so I did all this training. It was very intensive training, uh, traveling down to Joshua Tree. And then also I went down, I had the opportunity to go down to South America to f- complete um, my final round of training. <clears throat> and uh, right around that time before I had come, I had recently, my day job that I was in, um, I had met somebody and uh, he was a classical guitar player. Like that's what he'd actually gone to school for. Um, he wasn't working in that field when I met him, but I had asked him if he would teach me how to play guitar. Cause I thought if I could play guitar that I might feel confident enough to sing in public again. Uh, cause I just had just crippling stage fright. And, um, yeah, those guitar lessons really quickly turned into once he could just, dis- he discovered we had a moment where he had challenged me to sing a song and I did and, you know, shaking and all, and I had to turn my back to him. Like I had to like physically turn. I couldn't even look at him. And when I turned back around, he was like crying. He was like really moved by my voice. And that really shifted something in me. There was a spark there of like, Oh, okay. Like I could affect people and move energy with my voice also. Maybe there's something there. And so he was just really encouraging and lovely and also challenged me to write and, I remove that, I mean, I feel like, I, I do appreciate people giving me a lot of accolades for my vocal, my vocal capabilities, but I do feel like I'm a stronger songwriter than anything, in particular a lyricist. Um, so yeah, he just, he just basically gave me a riff and was like, hey, write a song. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And then I sat down and it, in half an hour I wrote a song. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh. And you know, a few months after that, like I said, I went down to South America to finish my shamanic training. And while I was there was being used as a demo by the teacher and I was in a beautiful classroom in the middle of the Chilean mountains with 25 other shaman in training and all this stuff was bubbling up and I was about to have like, it felt like a panic attack and I was crying and the teacher was like, what's coming up for you? And I was like, I think I want to sing, <laughs> but like, Sing for real, like sing as like my job. Like I want to be seen as a a musician and an artist. And I don't know, you know, I was 30 at that point. I was like, well, Like who just decides that now? And like, what am I doing? And, you know, I have a lot of friends, including you who are like, we're already just like these well, you know, I I feel like well-trained musicians and that kind of thing. So, you know, that imposter syndrome comes in and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, that was it. Like that was a catalyst moment. And then it took another five years from that moment for me to get up the, I came back home, left that job, settled down in Edmonton, started up my like shamanic practice and building that. And it took me five years of still unpacking all of those limiting beliefs and all of that to get to the point where I could claim that, yes, I wanted to do this for a living. And also that I want to do country music. That was a big piece as well, because, um, you know, as you know, being a big black woman with a big Afro, like people obviously assume by my looks that I sing a certain type of music and that was projected on me a lot. And, you know, as an empath, those are hard, hard things to dodge, (laughs) sometimes and uh yeah so it took took a while and you know I'm I turned 38 in October of this year so yeah I started at 35 and I definitely believe in in my heart of hearts that when your divine path is in alignment you you will experience acceleration and I do feel like that is what has happened so as soon as I stepped on that path and as soon as I stepped on that stage like the first time like That was it. And it's just, that doesn't mean that there has not been like an immense amount of challenges. There has been, but I feel like I was well prepared in the sense that like I was able to turn those challenges into opportunities. And also there was this great invitation for me to like continue to recommit to myself and not abandon myself, which has been like, you know, a cycle in my life. Um, You know, if somebody else wasn't perpetuating the abandonment, I would just do it for myself if that makes sense. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel I'm really excited. This things have really gained a lot of momentum in the last few months. My album is being received so, so well. I mean, it's super random to me, but like my song is going to be on hockey night in Canada this weekend, which is like so <laughs> Yeah, they just like reached out and we're like we love this song we love new kind of outlaw we're gonna play it on some commercial bumpers if you're okay with that I was like yeah <laughs> I-,
1: I love it too and it's been in my head all day and I have this thing with I don't know if you yeah. know Desiree Dawson but she's a friend of mine and one of her songs hey brother always comes in my head and yeah. every time she's about to call me like hey brother comes into my head and like anytime I hear it like I know that she and I are about to
2: connect and uh, it's funny and I think with you it's gonna be like new kind of outlaw because I've had yeah, it in me. my head all day I was <laughs> like wow it's a song it is a catchy song and a lot of people tell me that also that that song in particular sticks with them like they and it's funny because I thought that that song more than anything was going to be like a lot more I guess quote-unquote controversial or even my producers and like this is not like a shade to them like they thought like I'd ask them like what do you think should be like kind of the first single that I push and yeah like they like they had picked another song, but like I was like, really? I was like, oh man, I don't know. Like so, yeah, I felt like I wanted it to be new kind of outlaw, but I just didn't know how this song was going to be received, and like there was some fear there. So I kind of went the route where like I didn't say there was any one single. I just kind of highlighted three songs, and I just wanted to see what people responded to. And it's been new kind of outlaw. <laughs> Everybody's just like all about that song. So. Yeah, it's been a journey.
1: It's it's great. And I love that you share that because this, this series is called A Voice for Love because um, there's so many different aspects to the voice, right? Like singing is one of them. Speaking up for what you believe in is another one. But um, actually... I've made a course to go along with this too, which I haven't put out yet. But part of the motivation for that was I met so many people who say like, I can't sing, I can't sing, I can't sing. And I'm like, sure you can sing. Like everyone can sing. We might not all be professional singers, but you know, I believe that we can all sing. And I, and I think it's really important right now, like this throat chakra opening is kind of a a collective thing. And we need to open the voice so that we can, you know, there's, there's so much there that's waiting to be expressed.
2: So Dorje is my given Tibetan name. My name that was given to me by our guru, um when i took my refuge and um the full name is dorje drokar which means indestructible white tara and so dorje the other word for dorje is vajra and um really that's like also um the diamond way our lineage of buddhism is the vajrayana lineage which is the diamond way and the diamond is the hardest material you can't destroy it and that was really important for me to embody that name and use that as, you know, I just think my outward presence, um, because when I'm performing, I feel very vulnerable. Um, so just to remind myself of the strength that I have within and the fact that I'm divinely guided and blessed and protected is, uh, yeah, that's, that's what it has been, um, that is what it has been doing for me is just reminding me that I have those empowerments and those blessings. Yeah. So let's, let's,
1: um, let's actually talk a little bit about the the Vajrasattva path because that's actually not something that I've ever spoken about with any of the guests here. So I would yeah. love to, mm-hmm. yeah. And I love that
2: that's how we're connected and it's such a, so powerful. It is. And it, it you know, it, it's, uh, sometimes it's a bit, it can be a bit challenging, maybe challenging is not the right word, but I mean, it was definitely different when I was living in Vancouver and just like being surrounded by my Dharma brothers and sisters all the time and, you know, being close to the Dharma center. So it's definitely taken me on a different path to continue to maintain my connection to it, you know, living further away from everyone. But, you know, I am definitely, I'm, I'm, humbly proud of I guess the lineage that we are a part of and that we practice and in particular like in the remade tradition that is you know taught by our guru of just it being so open and so open-minded and um so inclusive um that's something that Rinpoche has always been about is you know Anyone could be his disciple. It doesn't matter if you're a drag queen. It doesn't matter if you're queer. It doesn't, like, none of those things. And I just feel like that he he was such a wonderful leader. Not that I think I've ever been necessarily an exclusive or exclusory person, but um, I think that those elements for me in particular um, have just continued to resonate with me. And then also I think all of the chanting that we've done together is obviously just still stays with me. And it's something that I do when I'm with clients and students and um, gathering together in song is so incredibly healing. I like think back to with great, you know, joy and happiness of being crammed in that tiny Dharma center for eight hours on end sitting (laughs) cross-legged. We're working through our sadhana sweating and you know the mental uh fortitude that came with that, and uh yeah i I continue to benefit from those those early days as a little baby disciple. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I remember those were the days and I had no idea. Like now I like, I'll cry sometimes when I think about it. Like I had no idea that he was going to like our, our, our teacher, our guru was going to go away. And like, yeah. we, who knows if and when we will ever see him again. I had no yeah. idea, you know, and it's just sort of now that I look back on it, it's one of those lessons, like always cherish the moment because you don't know, mm-hmm. you don't know what the future will bring. And sometimes people are there and sometimes they're not
2: yeah I mean we were so lucky we had such like we had so much access to him for so long and I mean I I feel in my heart of hearts that I'm gonna see him again for sure in this lifetime I feel really strongly about that um but yeah I mean and and those a lot of those barriers aren't really up to us it's just from because of where he's from and it's hard for him to travel it's not really safe for him to travel and also he's training the new guru there up in the mountains of Ashuk village and um But yeah, I, Buddhism saved me and Rinpoche helped guide me to my own healing in so many ways. Like I just, I don't know if I've ever, and again, not even putting him on a pedestal because I know I've, you know, encountered so many beautiful, compassionate people, but his compassion just literally knows no bounds and I continue to be in awe of how he could be this literal master <laughs> and revered by so many, but he offered so much humanness, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. I just, I like, I could get, I'm getting emotional just talking about it. I oh, think it, God. and also too, I think a part of it is, is because like, you know what I'm talking about because like you've experienced it firsthand, but yeah, I, meeting him and discovering this side. And, you know, when I met him and all of that, it wasn't this aha moment in this way that it was surprising. It was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for this whole time. (laughs) You know, it was that. It was like, oh, oh, this is it. This is what it is. This is me. I don't even, I don't even know I don't feel like there was this great change, even though I am so deeply changed at the same time, I didn't have to reorganize much about who I was to become this Buddhist practitioner and to take refuge and for him to be my guru. Um, I, I don't know if that really fully makes sense to folks, but um, the, the closest thing I can, you know, liken it to of meeting Rinpoche would be like a love at first sight thing that people might describe just a knowing, you know, it's not, it's not a romantic love with Rinpoche, but just, just a knowing, like, I know you. And it was instantaneous with him too. He was like, I know you too. Like, hello. I remember there's this beautiful um, exchange that has to happen when you're going to take your refuge. You have to ask that person if they will be your guru or if they are your guru. And, you know, so I had my one-on-one time with Rinpoche and I'm like kind of beating around the bush because it's weird because it feels like you're almost asking someone out. And and, but I was like, yeah, it's just I just want to know like, are you my guru? And he like just gave me this look. He's like, uh, one hundred percent, I'm your guru. Been together many thousand lifetimes. Like he has this like gorgeous like deep voice you do it very um, well
1: I'm like, I know. I'm like you do it very well that is actually what he sounds like she's not she's not making up that's one of the best things about him is like oh yes like that's like the first time that I met him I don't know if you do you know the story about how I met him I saw the remember when the temple was in West Van first okay um, hey, yeah so I was up there for some reason on that street and I saw the house and I saw the, the orange house and there were some prayer flags and the deer on the roof, but there was no sign that it was a Buddhist center and, but the gates were locked that day. And so I was like, what is this place? And so, you know, like I'm really into angels. So I said to my angels, I'm like, angels, I'm like, what is this place? I really have to know what it is. And I guess I forgot about it until about a month later, I worked part time in a tea shop at the time and he came into the tea shop and I looked at him and I was like, you, you're that guy who lives in the orange house on the hill, aren't you? He's like, yes. <laughs> and it was so funny. He's like, yes. He's like, come to meditation. <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah. And then, so we talked for a bit and he bought like a little tea thermos or something. And then, um, and then when he was leaving, I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. What's your name? And he's like, Rinpoche, you know. And then he turned around and he walked out. <laughs>
2: And that's it. you're hooked
3: it's over it's over yeah yeah that's it that's
1: it yeah, and I asked him the same thing once too I'm like how do we know each other he's like oh we know each other many lifetimes he's like probably you know maybe like guru disciple some life maybe brother sister another yes. life like maybe so many things you know yeah. but I always yeah. thought it was wild like this is how karma works like I'm like how did all of us end up together in Vancouver with you yeah. know meeting this teacher who we've all you know we all obviously know each other like sometimes yeah. when we were all there doing practice I felt like we were like I'm like back in the Monastery, like you know, <laughs> Back really. in the <laughs> really we were yeah Yeah, I love that we're talking about this because I know and and, you know for very good reason there's a lot of talk in the spiritual industry about how like guru culture is dead and of course it's because you know there's so many gurus who have abused power and done all these terrible things but every time I see it like a little part of my heart dies because I'm like if you have a guru like a and I have two so I feel very fortunate like I have Rinpoche and then Amma is like they're they're both my gurus I can't I can't separate either of them and I'm like to know that connection is the most yeah. beautiful. It is like straight from the heart and it's the mm-hmm. most incredible. I can't even describe it. It's almost like the love that I have. It's almost, it's exactly like the
2: love that I have for my child almost. It's like that yeah. type of, it is so very incredible. deep, Very deep. deep. And also I think, again, you know, we, I can't remember if we talked about this on, um, on while we were recording or not, but just that in particular with Rinpoche, he very much as much as he was our guru, like he was always just very much like, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm a human being too. I mean, even though I teach that we need to practice non-attachment, I get attached to things. I'm a human. It's okay. Like, you know, he really, I think the way he repro- approached his responsibility as a master, as a Rinpoche, I, I feel, you know, he did it was, he's done it with such incredible responsibility and, and respect. And I also feel like he has been someone that has encouraged us to find the guru also within. And I think that that is the difference between someone who is a real deal like him and a false prophet guru who is in it to, you know, for the accolades, for the awards, for, I don't know, getting someone else to sign up for their, you know, there's, there's something there that, um, he just brought a lot of humanness to us to to I guess the, that guru disciple dynamic.
1: So. Yeah and I always thought it was so interesting how many musicians there were
2: in the Sangha too. Like, well, like he was a musician. That's yeah. like what he would attract because he and I honestly feel, you know, Frederick and I have talked about this before, um, that if he hadn't have been the guru that he would have been a musician. He totally would have been a vocalist or a singer, a musician. He, you know, that's well, he, well, he is. He
1: he made a yeah. he made a CD with that. Yes, it's called yeah, that. Uh, right. Victor. I forget the last name, but that it's a beautiful yeah. CD about. And Brigitte has a beautiful voice. Yeah, but very multi talented because he's an artist too. I guess he's yeah. painted over like I can't remember some absurd oh, yeah of Tonka paintings like yeah. Yeah. Are hundreds are or thousands or something. So. Yeah. Totally. I I think that just goes to show for the, actually, I think that's the results of the practice too. I think, the, you know, the Tibetan Buddhist practice is so profound. And I remember he would always say like, you know, chant these mantras and do this practice because it's so old and it's got the blessing of so many masters and so many people have achieved enlightenment using this language. So it's very powerful.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, uh. Yeah. So Buddha Dharma. Yeah, Buddha Dharma. So good. Yeah. So wonderful. It's like, um, yeah, it's like, you know, they say like when two or more are gathered. So I feel like we're like in a, we're like in a Rinpoche Satsang now. And now I'm thinking, I'm like, how can I find him? I'm like,
2: can I get him on here somehow? (laughs) Live from the mountain, (laughs) live from the mountain with the yaks. Yeah. Maybe when he's back in Taiwan, like I think he is stable. I think he's, it's easier for him to travel to Taiwan because he does have the Dharma center there. I'm guessing that's where, um, yeah, the other person we were talking about before met up with him probably like a year and a half ago. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I do feel like we'll see him again soon, but it's such a contrast from being able to see him like every few months and, you know, for months at a time to him being so physically far away, but he definitely booms in on, um, my meditations from time to time, he shows up. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I talk to him. I look at him. I mean, I still have, I obviously look at his picture every day cause it's on my altar and that kind of stuff. So I try to practice that guru yoga still without, uh, you know, having the same access that I feel like I was so privileged to have for so long yeah and I think he
1: and and I think it's like that sometimes with you know teachers they show up and they teach us what we need to know at the time and I think he he's a really great teacher I definitely think he left us with a really strong foundational practice um, and I remember talking to a few people about that with about him like who know a lot of Rinpoche's and they said like that's really one of his things is he's a very good teacher so he taught us so much so many mantras and so much practice and so much yeah like now that I think about it like you're not even exaggerating we would literally like be like going eight hours hours. straight
2: remember like the weekend retreats but like the weekend retreat was literally two days (laughs) back to back of eight hours sitting cross-legged on the floor (gasps) Chanting uh, sadhanas in, uh, yeah, in Sanskrit and Tibetan. Yeah, that was our, those were our retreats. That's what those, we did. Yeah, those were our retreats. And then I don't know if you were ever
1: around for this, but I was laughing about this with someone the other day. um At one point, Lama decided that he was going to teach us all Tibetan. or So he had a Tibetan class and it was hilarious. We would do Tibetan class for about half an hour. And then he'd be like, go to the kitchen, get the cookies and the tea. And then we'd sit there and we'd
2: like drink tea and eat cookies. He's like, ah, oh, it's so good <laughs> So good to I never relax. I didn't get to go to any of Lama's Tibetan classes because uh, I think that was before I moved to Vancouver, but I did actually take some private Tibetan lessons while I was in Vancouver from another teacher. I wish I'd stayed with it, but Tibetan is a really challenging language to learn because it's all like just the, the syllables that you have to learn <laughs> are, yeah, just so so much. I still have my notes from those classes, the the private lessons that I did take um yeah well
1: there's a lot of sounds that we don't make I mean even yeah. I didn't know I've always said Dorje and then yeah. <laughs> you're like no it's Dorje mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah. I made a whole album in Tibetan and I didn't even know that yeah. and, I mean that's uh yeah it is a complicated language yeah. but it's like, a it's a beautiful well it's, it's yeah. in, like Sanskrit they have a lot of really specific sounds that we don't
2: necessarily make in yeah. English so and also like The placement of the tongue, like where your tongue is when you're making the sound, all of that is all, it's, yeah, super complicated.
1: But also what I've noticed is that, um, because since he's left, I've gone and done practice at some other places too. I have noticed, and I've been told this by other Tibetans too, again, it's similar to English, like how you could have a British accent, an Australian accent, and a, you know, American or Canadian accent. Even with Tibetan, within the different regions, people will speak and pronounce things slightly differently. So I think we, we just do our best. Yep, absolutely.
2: Totally. <laughs> really? This light is just... <laughs>
1: It's amazing. I wish we're not going to have the video here, but I wish you could see. It is like the most beautiful light on Dorje here. She has like it's like going like a oh my gosh. There's been like a blue light flashing down on her. There's like sun rays all around her. It's quite majestic actually. It's like, very, I can, like uh, I, I've taken a whole bunch of screenshots. I'll I'll send some to you and I'll I'll maybe share them so people can see. It's quite it's quite uh, magical. So um I can actually see like when I see your. I was telling you like how much I love your, your, like your album cover and your photos and everything. Cause I can really feel that like the presence that's in you. So like, you could have fooled me that you were a shy singer. Cause when I looked at you, like when I looked at your picture, I was like, wow, like, she's just so like, you just ooze this like presence. So do you think that, I mean, I obviously that wasn't maybe something that you always had. And so how does your, how has your shamanism and your practice and all that helped you to come into that place?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've definitely through all of the different trainings and creating my own unique shamanic practice, I have curated tools to navigate trials and tribulations, and obviously for my clients, but also for myself. And it, it has—it's been—it's been a lot of, I think, internal work. That's a practice for sure. Um, a lot of—I just actually had a client earlier today uh, who has just you know, they're a new entrepreneur and, uh, just walking them through some things and of just like what I've done to kind of overcome. And a big thing for me is like visualization. So especially with like having stage fright, I used to have a really big fear that nobody would ever show up to my shows. Um, so I really try to, when I have a limiting belief, thought or feeling or an insecurity, I never repress those. I allow them to come up, but I do not let them go unchallenged. So I very much like to work with mantras. Mantra literally means vehicle of the mind. So if my mind's in one spot and I need to get it to another spot so I can be successful or achieve what I want to achieve, I like to bring in short, concise words or just short phrases. And I also match that with a visualization. So for that point in my life, I would sit at my altar light my incense like a good little disciple and um, start by visualizing myself on stage and me killing it. Like me just rocking it out on stage and that the room was full, that every single, there was a person in every single seat. Um, And then, so I would sit with that visualization long enough to really be in it. And then I would just ask for three words to come forward. Like, what are those three words that can bring me back to this visualization anytime I'm feeling that insecurity again? Um, so, it, I don't know. It might have been back then, like, acceptance, welcoming, success, right? Like, that could have been it. And so, and that's what it would be. So, like, for that week or two while I was leading up to the show, like, every day while I'm in my car driving, success, achievement, acceptance, welcoming, um, and just going back to that. And, um, yeah, it just generated, I mean, I don't think I've had, I've hard, had hardly a show since I started gigging that hasn't been sold out or full or near capacity. Um, and I I'm really, I'm very proud of like my, what I do within a performance. I really think I create a unique experience. I open up sacred space every time I do a show, like we actually sing and call in the directions and I have the audience like participate in that. I do this whole thing where I, cause I wear lights in my hair for all of my shows and performances. So like, there's a whole thing I do with like turning the, like, you know, it's like, and another thing I do as a shaman is bring light to the darkness. So I'm going to give you more light now. And I hit a battery pack in my bra strap and my hair lights up and people are like, ah, and it's, just this like whole immersive, I usually always perform with a wireless mic as well so I can move throughout the audience and connect with people so to get that closeness. Um, so yeah, I try to make everyone in the audience like my friend and to feel comfortable and then I feel comfortable and there's not this separation between me and them. And again, I think that goes back to even that teaching of like, we don't need to put each other up on pedestals right? So let me get off the stage and just come and be with you. And um, there's less of a feel of failure that way, I guess. Um, But yeah, that's been a big aspect for me. Um, A lot of intention setting, a lot of visualization, a lot of prayer, obviously. And I work a lot with my personal deity, White Tara, and that's also who I'm named after. Um, So yeah, all of those elements have uh, really contributed to me feeling and finding the success that I feel like I'm finding now, for sure.
1: Well, and you are experiencing a lot of success. Lots of, I think you're the featured, you're one of the featured Apple country artists right now. And you've got yeah, a lot. Radio, yeah, I've radio, But I, wanted, I just want to touch on, I love what you just said because it's been something I've been thinking about a lot because I'm always thinking about like, you know, dismantling the system and white supremacy. And I was thinking so much about how, you know, in the old system, like the patriarchal system, it's like, it's this whole thing of, you know, we have an artist or a singer and it's only like a very small group of people can be famous. And then we put these artists up on a pedestal too. Yeah. And, and now it's like, no, like we all can create, we all can, you know, if, if we find that joy inside of us and that's what we want to do. And that's another way that we dismantle the system is by owning our own creativity and then saying like, I'm going to do this, you know, and it doesn't matter if, you know, for me sometimes, like when I, make an offering or sometimes I'll make videos. And it's just like, I'm like, if one person hears this and they benefit from it, that's good enough. It doesn't matter. We don't need to. It's not always about the person who has like the biggest following or the biggest fan base that's doing I think that's an idea that we have to let go of. And I see that a lot in the spiritual industry too. You know, it's, I like mean, it's, it's just, cap- yeah.
2: Capitalism. I mean, white supremacy was created. So capitalism could keep, you know, the rich people in power. <laughs> but that is capitalism. Capitalism tells us that there's not enough for all of us. And that's a fucking lie. There actually is enough for all of us. Not only that, I mean, yes, for sure, like within talking about kind of like celebrity culture and all of that, and to be an artist, but in general we have enough resources on this planet to house everybody. We have enough resources on this planet to feed everybody, to clothe everybody and actually to do it in a sustainable way. We have all of that available to us and we still don't do it. And it's not a logistics thing. It's that that does not benefit the people that have the most power. And so absolutely to me, the only competition I'm ever in is with myself. Certainly, you know, even building up my shamanic practice and, um, I started building it in Edmonton at a time where there wasn't, I guess, a lot of other people doing it. Um, but as you know, time progressed, definitely you're seeing a lot more like full moon classes pop up and et cetera, et cetera, which is great. And you know, the odd time when I would feel that like, Oh my gosh, like what's happening? Like people are taking over. Like I'm going to lose business. I just kept reminding myself, like there's literally a million people in this city. Like how many clients do you need? How many students do you need to survive? And also, that reminder that my medicine isn't for everybody, including my art isn't for everybody. And that is okay. That is totally fine. And exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah, if you touch one person, isn't that worth it? And what is the ripple effect of you affecting that one person? Just because you, you know, were able to put yourself out there to be witnessed, to be seen, to share your medicine, to share your art, whatever that is. Um yeah, if you were the only person I was like, yo, new kind of Allah, I have it in my head, it's like just over and over. Um I have a real ch- conscious choice I can make there to receive that and to accept that as enough or not, right? Um and one keeps me closer to my divinity and one keeps me closer to my egoic self. And I like to choose the divine side more often than not. I, I, you know, I love my egoic self. We need that side of ourselves, but yeah, capitalism is a real fucking trip. And I'll tell you what, as an artist and now learning the music business, yo, they have really gotten their hands into our craft. Cause I'll tell you what, as a musician, I'm the last one to get paid before anything and people are like benefit off of my art before i do like it's messed up to me that apple and spotify take 99% of the money for someone to listen to my music and, you know if they didn't have us if there was a mass exodus of artists from apple music they would have nothing right um and that's why too like i love platforms like bandcamp I, that's why i try to push that Um, because I make 95% of the money when somebody purchases my art from there. And I really try to do that on my end too, to support artists in that way. And, but the thing is, is like, if you want to be, um, I think for a lot of, even as an independent artist, it doesn't matter. The system has been set up that I need Apple Music, I need Spotify. Cause guess what, when I'm going to like look for grants, when I wanna get booked for shows and festivals, they wanna know how many times I've been streamed on Apple Music and Spotify. So that is something that I, I hope that we're moving towards like as citizens of this universe that we stop allowing ourselves to be commodified so much in that way. Um, it's very important for me in particular as an artist to always own my masters. Like I will never, ever, ever give up the masters to my music ever. Um, and I think that that's still something, unfortunately, that does happen. I mean, if you look at like someone like Taylor Swift, like how screwed she got with her music and she, at the level that she is at. So that is something too, that I would really, Suggest to artists in particular, I mean, to all artists, but to BIPOC artists in particular, it's really, really important for you to own your art and to keep that ownership, no matter what dang, like carrot gets dangled in front of you, because that can be your legacy moving forward. And um, yeah, I I just, uh, it's just been, it's such a, there's so many middlemen between me and getting my music out to the people to just be heard and witnessed. And um, I'm, I'm working on actively manifesting that there being less of that. I need to get, gain some more clout, <laughs> if that makes sense. I need to get a few more pennies in my pocket. But that's a long-term goal for me is to be able to connect more directly with, with my audience or my listeners without having to pay like 20 other people <laughs> to do that.
1: Well, and I think with the technology we have, it's that is all possible more so than ever, and cool. it's just a matter of time and building your loyal following, and then people they they want you, they don't want the middleman, they don't want, they don't even care who that is, you know. So yeah. I think we're it's we're very lucky. I think about that all the yeah. time. I'm like, wow, I remember back in the day, like you had to like go to a studio, and that was the only way that you could make music, and then you had to try to get it on a record label, and if you yeah. couldn't get it on a record label, then nobody could hear your music. But now, you know. We can make music at home if we want to. We can, there's so many incredible ways that we can share music. And, you know, as far as, I mean, I mean, music is so powerful. That's why the capitalists have so much of their hand in the industry because they want to control it because they know that music is medicine. And think about how meaningful music is to people. Like most people listen to some kind of music like every day or even throughout the day. It's the thing that calms us. It's the thing that makes us happy. It's the things that helps us get, through the difficult times so there's a lot that's invested in music so I'm really a stand for artists taking back their own power and like you said owning their masters and owning and then educating themselves like I always whenever I run into really green artists especially like female artists and stuff I'm always schooling them and I'm like look like don't be naive because you don't um you know make sure you know what you're up against and know what you're getting into and that you fight for what's yours because you know
2: And also, also, you know, for anybody listening who is a Canadian artist, we do have support as artists. And there is actually a lot of like fairly, I would say, um, support that you can access with not having a lot of funds in terms of just information. um, You know, I pay like $30 a month here in Alberta for an Alberta music membership. And they put on workshop after workshop. That's the thing I'm doing next after I'm done talking to you taking another workshop about writing grants. There's so many grants also available in our country, um, locally, like in the municipalities, in the provinces and, um, federally, uh, like, you know, artists down in the States, they don't have that. I'm, I was, I met with a, a musician Nashville online and we were just chatting, we were setting up a co-write and yeah, it was just there. She was like, you know, are, are you ever going to move down to Nashville? And I was like, why? <laughs> I'm like, there's, there's nothing for me in Nashville. Like Nashville is not going to support me the way that where I'm living right now supports me as an artist. The opportunities I have up here, I could never get down in the U S and so say
1: never, never say never, never say never.
2: It's not about never. It's just, it's different. The opportunities are different down there. They don't have grants. They don't give artists grants down there. Like that's not a thing that happens down there, not on a government level anyways there might be the odd, like obviously there's scholarships and stuff like that, but they, they don't have those same options. So there is a lot of information out there. There's a lot of like inexpensive workshops, that kind of stuff. So find out who those kind of governing bodies are like in your city and in your province. Um, that has just been immensely helpful for me. Um, also finding mentorship, that kind of stuff, that's been really helpful for me. I was able to access, I applied for, Um, just a few mentorship sessions with um, another like organization here in the city. And I was linked up with Nuella Charles, which is, uh, she's a Juno nominated artist. She's been like, she's an independent artist. She's been hustling for like 10 years and she was so helpful and so willing to help as well. Um, So I I think that's, what's exciting to me and really encouraging that there is some support for us uh, in this country. And I think what I'm really trying to do is build on all of that and then, yeah, create a sustainable career for myself where I feel like I'm not being taken advantage of by the big wigs. Um, And then also hopefully to inspire other artists to know that they could go this route and make a go for it, a go of it, you know?
1: Oh, I love that. And and something else I'd love to chat about, is yeah. uh, which, I, which I saw in one of your posts, and then I was like, I didn't know this. And then I was like, well, duh, of course. You, when you said country music comes from Black people, and I'm like, yeah, of course yeah. it does. <laughs> like, duh. I never, I'm not a big country fan. I think the only time I ever listened to, to country was one time I was working up the mountain, and I had a girl that was my roommate in our little chalet, and she was from and she was from Calgary or Alberta somewhere like you are and so she listened to country music all day long and I found the lyrics like I, I used to giggle
2: at them because I was like are these people depressed <laughs> so like everything is like a sad song like you know well she left me and she's gone yeah, she's crying. yeah there is no. some weird country music out there my partner uh, <laughs> my partner uh, comes from a um, a really conservative Muslim background and uh wow they and they're black but they yeah they've only just been exposed to country music since we've been together <laughs> and we definitely have moments where we'll just kind of touch into some like mainstream country music and have a giggle of just like i can fix you a drink and then the next song is like i need more whiskey and like it's like da-da-da. um we actually just went and got pedicures the other day and they had just you know the tv running with um videos and it was actually on country music and it just felt like we were listening to the same song for two hours. Um, But that is the issue with mainstream country music or a part of the issue. And I don't want to, I never want to crap on other people's art. Like it's not about that. I think it's just like, there's this formula in country music that has been very purposely curated and it usually centers cis white het men. And with a smattering of cis white het females or women um and yeah that's just it like the the erasure of black people in country music is immense and it's still going on to this day and not only that you know on top of that too like the amount of very successful white country artists who have merged and created like they use rap like they use, they mix elements of trap music into their country songs. And they're huge. Like Florida, Georgia line. I mean, oh my gosh. If you feel like you want to go listen to a song called My Truck. Um, I,
1: heard my truck. I heard that song. I was like, what?
2: <laughs> but I find it really interesting that that same band won't come out against and speak out openly against systemic racism. Yet they are profiting off of you know, a table that was built by black people. They sit at that table, they eat off that table off the backs of black people. So that's really important for me. I want to make country music inclusive for people. I'm not, it's it's not that I am gung-ho about being a mainstream country artist. I just want to break down barriers in country music because there is a lot of great music out there. There are tons of BIPOC country music, country music artists out there. They just don't get the same exposure and platform. There are tons of, LGBTQ, uh, 2S plus artists in the country music realm across the world. There's so, so much. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's a big part of my platform is I want black people to know that country music is for them. That's really important for me. Um, you know, and that's been something really healing anybody that responds to my music. I'm so happy about, but I was filmed for this little mini documentary a couple of weeks ago and, uh, for Black History Month and the, the videographer crew, uh, was all like these like black men and it was so, we had so much fun filming and then they wanted to film me lip syncing one of the songs. So they were just playing for some B-roll and they were so into the song and they also were surprised that they loved it so much. And they just kept like singing the lyrics over and they were just like, this is so good. Like they were hyped up and, um. I feel like, you know, we talk about the ancestors like that, I feel like the ancestors cheering and just being like, yes, like let us all be able to reconnect with our roots. You know, the banjo is based off of the banjar, which came from Africa. The the very first roots of the fiddle comes from Northern Africa. Twang was created by black people who were slaves in the South. Um, all of it came from black people and yeah, then it got, you know, taken away from us like many other things. So there's just a reclamation there for me. And also for me too, I grew up in Alberta, small town, Alberta's I grew up, um, you know, I'm biracial. So my mom is white and I was raised by her. I was surrounded by country music my entire life. And I had these heroes and, when I finally was able to decide that I was going to do country music, and then I started learning the history of country music, it broke my heart. And I, again, I just feel like there needs to be recognition of where it comes from. And I, I would hope that, um, And I, you know, country music is going through a big reckoning right now. There was like like a big event that happened last week where like the number one country music star in the world right now was caught on video saying the N word.
3: Yeah. (laughs) It's been
2: major. I didn't know that. Wow. I'm doing an interview for a CBC podcast tomorrow to talk about it actually. Um, You know, and for the first time, Like he, he really, there was real repercussions. He was pulled from CMT. He's not eligible for the um ACM awards or the CMA awards, which are the big academies of country music. He was pulled from like all radio play, you know. That's and this is the first time, and it doesn't, it's still met with resistance. People saying, like, oh, like he made a mistake, he da da da, but you know, people not acknowledging like how that might be harmful for Black people. And why would Black people feel welcome when somebody like that is at the top of his game and is being put on this pedestal and he can get away with something with no consequences? Um, But this is one of the first times where those big, um, you know, governing bodies in country music have taken a real strong stand. Even last year, between January and June of 2020, there was less than 6% of on mainstream country music that were BIPOC artists um, being played, less than 1% for queer folk. Um, and that has, that is drastically changing. Like every day, it is drastically changing. Um, CMT, Country Music Television just announced their 2021 uh, Women next women in country. And half of them were women of color or black women. Um, that's unprecedented. Uh, Mickey Guyton this year is the first solo black female artist to be nominated for a Grammy in the country music category. Can you believe that in 2021 last year, she was the first black solo artist to perform at the CMAs for goodness sakes. And she's been around for 10 years. She's an incredible singer songwriter and her record label sat her up on a shelf because they couldn't sell a black country artist. So, you know, and, you know, a lot of people like to talk about Charlie Pride and how, you know, he was really welcomed by the country music industry. But, like, George Jones, who is obviously one of the biggest country stars out there, wrote, you know, Super N-Word on the side of his car as a joke back in the day. Sorry, no, that's a lie. He wrote KKK on the side of his car. Um, Willie Nelson's the one that nicknamed him Super N-Word. Um And, you know, all the other things that Charlie Pride, the Grand Old Opry, which is an institution in country music, was the name Grand Old Opry was inspired by D. Ford Bailey, who was a black harmonica player who they used to have on the radio shows for the Grand Old Opry or Grand Old Opera is what it was originally called. And uh, but they obviously wouldn't allow people to see him. And they also booted him out. They kicked him out of the grand old Opry in the 1940s over some dispute with, um, licensing and actually paying him his worth. And they didn't induct him into the country music hall of fame until like 2005. Um, so, you know, he, I, I just, they have really, they've done a lot of wrong towards black people. And, um, it's time for not us to have a seat at the table. Like we need to occupy many seats at the table because we built it, you know, and I'm very passionate about that. It's really exhausting, especially, you know, even in this province that I'm in, we definitely are the hub of country music in Canada or at least Western Canada. Um, And it's something I'm battling all the time. I sent a big email to country music, Alberta here about my frustrations and their lack of, really trying to make things inclusive and, you know, cause they posted a black square last year saying that they're listening, saying that they're wanting to do anything. And I haven't seen anything meaningful since. And I, I've just had enough. I sent them a message and I said, I'm going to withdraw my membership too. I don't want to be associated with you if you're not going to actually acknowledge that there's an issue here and you're not going to talk about it. And also, and I'm not going to be silent about it. <laughs> so if you want to, you know, There's something about that for me in the position I am, I'm inevitably going to be tokenized um, within what this is, right? Because I am one of the only black folks doing country music up here in Canada on a professional level or in Western Canada. But I want that to change. I want anybody who is interested in country music to feel like they could have a shot at doing it, right? Um, And let the limitation be your level of talent, and not the color of your skin and not the size and shape of your body and not your gender or non-gender and not your sexuality. Like that is so fucked up because art is just pure divinity. Creativity is pure divinity. And again, capitalism has stripped a lot of that away and turned it into this formula of what is acceptable and what is not. And that is what I feel like I don't know if I'm up against, but that is, that is my trajectory. That is what I'm trying to do within this space of country music as a black queer artist.
1: Oh, I love it. I was like, yeah, it sounds like (laughs) this, this is like your mission. This is like your Dharma. This is like everything wrapped up into one. It's like your art, it's your activism, it's your purpose, it's your mission. It feels like it's all colliding and it feels really,
2: really purposeful. And I can hear the, yeah when you speak about that this is all I've been speaking about for two months really this is (laughs) all because it's a it's a topic of interest now you know um but yeah no it's it's been really interesting it's interesting being called an activist or considered an activist because I don't know if I really do consider myself that I'm just a fat queer black woman and that's it (laughs) so like I it's like I'm what I'm doing is making sure that there's space for me and you know yeah somebody had told me that last year they're like wow I didn't realize you did all this other stuff like on top of being an activist and I was like "Activist? I was like that's not on my title like that's not on my job title I was like I'm just I'm black man like
1: well, you're, you're you're advocating for yourself, and you're 100%. also. But when you advocate for yourself, you are also advocating for so many other people who are in a in a similar struggle. And like, um, I'm all about it, and it's it's so beautiful. I'm so like, I'm like, I'm very moved. I'm so, you know, we've known each other for a while and I'm just so, um, I, I'm just so happy to see you excelling and just glowing and, um, in your power like this. And I'm your,
2: I'm, I'm your friend. <laughs>
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm, a fan. I'm
2: a fan. And so please um, tell everyone where, where can they find you? yeah uh you can find me through my website which is dorjay.ca d-o-r-j-a-y.ca um i'm on instagram 17 degrees of dorjay same with twitter 17 degrees dorjay um and then facebook dorjay the singing shaman uh yeah, I'm just on all the socials and all the things. If you're interested in listening or purchasing my album, I would love to direct you to Bandcamp. Just type in Dorje, D apostrophe O-R-J-A-Y um, or The Singing Shaman. Um, yeah, and you can find my album there. Um, I just released today uh, the second volume of my chapbook series, which is called Shit My Shaman Says. And it's just like a, an easy read. Uh, it's e-literature. My publisher is called Party Trick Press. And they're just really passionate about doing beautifully curated e-lit. So, yeah, it's a a self-help chapbook. And it just teaches you tools to be in self-inquisition with yourself. Um, I pick certain topics for um, each chapbook that I release. So uh, this one's all around love and being in relationship with yourself and being in romantic relationships with others. So there's three topics. It goes, shit my shaman says when I'm addicted to romantic entanglements, shit my shaman says when I'm an empath and I'm in a relationship, and shit my shaman says for when I need to communicate with my partner. So I use some examples of kind of clients that I've seen like themes come up over the years and and then I break it down into some steps like some breathing exercises and helping you develop mantras and then there's also a companion shamanic journey that go like an audio recording that goes with each um topic as well Um, so yeah you can find that on party trick press or there's also a link in on my website to that as well I'm so excited about that coming out and yeah, I mean, I'm hoping to gig soon.
3: <laughs>
2: that, aren't we all? I'd <laughs> love to do that. I've got a couple of um, private virtual shows that I've been booked for recently coming up. Uh, we're kind of bound here because restrictions are still pretty tight. Um, but yeah, that's that's where you can find me.
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm going to play New Kind of Outlaw for everyone yes. <laughs> so they can hear it for themselves. And thank you so much for coming and chatting. It's been such a wonderful chat, everyone.
3: Ladies
1: oh. and
2: gentlemen, Dorje, <laughs> the singing shaman. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having, you, having me. I love you so much. I love you too. <laughs>
3: thank Mwah. you, everyone. Mwah. I'm a new kind of outlaw Can you see past the bird of boys Cause I'm a new kind My throes to the roof, and I ain't here to look cute. Ooh. I'm a new kind of outlaw, so no mainstream radio. When you're a new kind of outlaw like me, they ain't feeling your black with flow. My ass is fat, and to to air my show. <clears throat> Country music, what you want?
0: You've been listening to A Voice for Love. This is Surya Devi. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this series inspires you to discover your own voice for love so you can use it to be a force for good in your life and in the world. You can find me at suryadeviworld.com. I wish you great joy, good health, and the courage to speak up for what you believe in.
3: Peace.